0: back to the G3 podcast as we continue to navigate this very strange season of social distancing during this COVID-19 pandemic. We find ourselves preparing to re-enter the culture at large to be able to get back to some normalcy very soon, specifically in the area of local church worship. And so I do hope that you're going to be able to join your church very soon as you continue to navigate these challenges in this very challenging season. Today's episode of the G3 Podcast will be focused on the subject of standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology related to two very important areas of life, both politics, American politics specifically, and the evangelical circles that we live in. So various denominations from Southern Baptist to Presbyterians. And so we're going to talk today about that very subject. And I'm excited to welcome back to the G3 podcast, Allie Beth Stuckey. Allie is a wife, a speaker. She is a a mother. She is an author. She is a conservative Christian commentator. She's also the host of a popular podcast, Relatable. And she is also a guest commentator on the Fox News Network. Most recently, she was a guest speaker at the 2020 G3 conference as she was there speaking to women. And we are very delighted to have Allie back with us for this podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Allie.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. So we are living in some very interesting times. Needless to say, we're coming out of a pandemic. We've had to navigate some very challenging times related to social distancing uh, both from a Christian perspective and then also just a just a common perspective as a as an American citizen, but now, as we 're thinking about coming out of this pandemic we 're preparing ourselves to enter the arena of a presidential election season. so these are very interesting times wouldn 't you say
1: Yes, very interesting times, and you touched on this in in your uh, in your introduction or in your question but a lot of people feel like they don't have the time or maybe the, the desire to keep up with everything that's going on, they're already overwhelmed by what seems like the most pressing threat or most pressing issue, and that's the pandemic. And then all of the policies that are coming down the pipeline in relation to the pandemic, some of them may be helpful, maybe some of them more hurtful than helpful. And so everyone's thinking about how all of this directly affects their families, plus everything that's happening um, in the strictly political sphere. And so you've got, a seeming scandal in the FBI and what some people are calling deep state corruption. And then you have this presidential election, a very consequential presidential election coming up in just a few months. And all of the things that we're used to in in an election year, talking about the two candidates, comparing the two candidates, looking at the ads, watching the debates, things like that, have all been put on hold or at least look different than they did a few years ago. We thought that 2016 was... Had to be the peak of uh, of contention contention when it comes to politics and, and and scandal and controversy and arguments and losing friends and things like that. I don't think that we could have foreseen just how much more um, that will be the case in this 2020 election, especially with everything else that's going on on top of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, today we want to have a very important conversation. Uh, related to an issue known as standpoint epistemology. Now, we want to talk about that very subject from two vantage points, one from the area of politics, and then um, another vantage point would be the evangelical church. And so that would encompass not only like local church settings, but also various denominations such as the Presbyterians, Baptists, and what have you. So As we think about this very subject, standpoint epistemology is basically this idea that stems from standpoint theory. So standpoint theory is a feminist perspective that argues that knowledge stems from social position. So just let me give you an example. A feminist scholar named Patricia Hill Collins once said the following. She said, my reading of standpoint theory sees it as an interpretive framework dedicated to explicating how knowledge remains central to maintaining and changing unjust systems of power. End quote. So now Ali, the issue is this is that this idea of a feminist movement and standpoint epistemology standpoint is the idea of a lived experience. And so now here we are on the very verge or the precipice of a presidential election season. And we have Joe Biden who early on in the process has made it very clear that he will be selecting a woman for his running mate. Now, when I hear that, again, I'm thinking of this reality that he's, he's reaching out to a specific, uh, a specific uh, pool of voters, if you will. But when we think about that, that statement early on, he had made up his mind, he was going to choose a woman as his running mate. Now, when I think about Politics obviously, there's all sorts of you know strategy that's at play, but when we think about you know the culture and uh, America as a whole and who we would want to serve and to lead this nation, should we look for someone that maybe has the best skill set or the best knowledge base or maybe the best ability to lead the nation, or should we just say we're just going to choose a woman to be the running mate? So, how would you look at that? thinking through the lens of standpoint epistemology as a tool that's being used even within American politics?
1: Well, I think it's not just a tool that a lot of people on the left use. I don't wanna make sweeping generalizations. I'm sure there are people on the left who feel like for the president and for the vice president, you need to choose the best person for the job. It's not just about your racial or gender identity, whatever kind of language they wanna use surrounding identity. Of course, there are some people on the left who believe in merit, but there seems to be a growing portion of the left who buy into what you just described, this Marxist idea that in order to have any kind of credibility for any kind of leadership position or asserting any kind of opinion, you have to be coming from the standpoint of a of a certain kind of marginalization that the left deems legitimate. Um, so it can't just be that you have your... You know, personal oppression that you experienced or something like that. You have to fall into the intersectional categories that the leftist elites and academics say this means that you're marginalized. Therefore, because of that, you have more social and political capital and more credibility than someone without your racial identity. Of course, the irony in all of this, and I've just learned to not even try to find consistencies within that worldview. The irony in all of that is that the person that they have uh, presumably nominated as the nominee for president of the United States does not fit into any of those marginalized categories that fit into this standpoint theory framework. But I guess they'll have to just settle for the vice president, someone like Stacey Abrams that kind of fits into those marginalized categories. And it, it's not just that they believe that, okay, we want representation. We want there to be a woman. We want there to be a, a gay person or an African-American person, wh- whatever it is. They believe that at the expense of merit and at the expense of real experience that would make you a good, for example, a vice presidential pick. Because if they also cared about merit, if they also cared about you know, what's on your resume, then Stacey Abrams wouldn't be the center of that conversation. I mean, as we know, she hasn't even won a statewide election. And so um, that's, I think, continually what we see is that uh, something like standpoint theory or the uh, idea that being marginalized somehow gives you more capital and credibility and qualifies you for a role um, can't coexist with the idea that, uh, that merit uh, earns you that position or that hard work earns you that position, they seem to be mutually exclusive um, so often. And the, the idea of your identity so often trumps the uh, importance of what you've done and what actually qualifies you for a role.
0: Yeah, interestingly enough, you bring up Stacey Abrams, and you know when, when Biden first announced that he would be selecting a woman as his running mate, it wasn't enough for her that she would be a woman. It was that she needed to be a black woman. She needed to be of a specific class in her mind. And so, again, this idea that you have more capital or that you have more value to offer – Uh, the culture at large, because you're looking at the culture through a lens of a marginalized experience, a a lived resume, if you will, that's so far different according to standpoint epistemology than the lens of a privileged perspective, if that makes sense. So again, I see this as really just a tool. It's a pragmatic tool to reach out to a specific uh, voting block, if you will, to try to Um, lure voters into the voting block to say, we really need this person because they can really speak to my needs better than say a white man could, if that makes sense.
1: Yes. And obviously we know that real experiences in people's lives might make them more qualified or more fitting for a certain role and gives people different perspectives that can be valuable. People that are raised in poverty, people that went to a private school, a public school, they obviously have different knowledge and those different kinds of knowledge can, you know, it can come together to, to be helpful in achieving whatever goal it is in whatever context we're talking about. I think one problem, one of many problems with what you just articulated in picking someone like Stacey Abrams or someone on the basis of their race or sex or sexual orientation or whatever it is, is the utter superficiality of it, is that there's no talk whatsoever about what their actual experience, uh, what their actual experiences were. It is very much um, just a matter of what they look like and as they identify and not actually what they bring to the table
0: as you mentioned a moment ago perspective matters when we think about the fact of choosing someone to lead america uh, it doesn't really come down to the idea of standpoint epistemology as the driving force it really should come down to the idea of who actually does have the best resume not who has the best lived experience so to speak And when we think about that, we need to be very clear that this is going to have massive, massive implications upon, you know, where we go as a nation. When we vote, it really does matter. And so uh, there's an agenda that's being pressed. So back to Patricia Hill Collins, when she states that standpoint epistemology is this framework that is a deconstructive framework, that deconstructs or it brings about change within power structures. So back to the idea of social justice. Social justice in and of itself is a deconstructive agenda that brings about the idea of, you know, I'm going to deconstruct a power structure. I will turn over. Uh, you know, an evangelical denomination, and I will build upon a foundation that I see as best, and put into the seats of power the people that agree with my positions or ideas or theological perspectives. So, when we think about that from an American politics standpoint, this is a huge thing, and we must be very cautious as we move forward.
1: Yes, and I think it's it's very trendy. It almost uh, feels more academic or sophisticated to have this kind of destruct or er, uh, deconstructionist. Worldview, I guess you could say it's destructionist as well. It is destroying um, a lot of things in its wake, unfortunately. But I think that's true, certainly, about theology, certainly, about politics. There are a lot of people who believe that taking on that kind of mentality that you just described somehow makes them more nuanced. And unfortunately, the pursuit of nuance has completely dominated the pursuit of truth, especially for young people. And there is an attraction that comes with the deconstructive nature of leftism today that makes people feel that they are being, um, they're being the most authentic, I don't know, the most authentic version of their individual selves by pursuing what they think is, um, is real truth from their standpoints, which I guess is what standpoint theory uh, uh, asserts. And so you do see this kind of, uh, nature in the pursuit of knowledge, whether it comes to politics or theology, I would say especially among people my age, it seems.
0: Yeah. And when I think about the the state of American politics and specifically the democratic framework and their circles, I see them as somewhat desperate. I mean, I, I see them as looking at Trump as being very successful and hard to defeat and so one of the ways to defeat them would be to sort of virtue signal their way to the top to say, well, we, we really do care about women on this side of the fence. So you should maybe consider voting for us because we're going to be more sympathetic to the needs of women. And so that would be this idea of, you know, standpoint epistemology as being infused within the Democratic playbook for this upcoming election season.
1: Yes, definitely, and I've said many times in the past week or so is that there is a big difference between virtue and virtue signaling, and we can have an honest debate about the virtues of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump if if you want to do that. We can have a, an honest debate uh, among Christians about the virtues of you know conservatism versus leftism. Of course, to me, there's there's no debate, but you know we can have an honest conversation about that. What you can't have an honest conversation and an honest debate about is virtue signaling. So the signal of virtue without having any real substance behind it or any real meaning behind it. So those mantras that we believe women or we believe in science or uh, we are the compassionate pro- birth party, whatever. When, okay, if you peel back the virtue signals you realize, and we're already seeing this with some of the things that are going on in the Democratic Party, they don't actually believe women, they're not actually pro-science, all of the things they virtue signaled, there's no actual virtue behind it. But as long as we're all virtue signaling, we can't ever have an honest conversation about what policies do these people represent? What policies do these parties represent? And I think that's part of the reason why we miss each other so much in conversations about justice and truth and politics is that there's so much hollow virtue signaling going on and so little real conversation about what the policies are and what the Bible has to say about these policies, which is a huge disservice.
0: Well, now let's transition to another sphere. And this is the the circle of the church and evangelical circles. So various denominations, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Presbyterian circles are all affected by the social justice movement. Now, let's just be clear for some time now, there have been lots of people who have been arguing against the idea that there is a social justice movement that's actually moving through evangelicalism. I don't know many people now that would actually argue against it, uh, at the very beginning of uh, the you know the announcement, the rollout of the statement on social justice, there were a, a lot of people who were pushing back against it and denying that there was actually a social justice agenda or movement now it 's just about what is this agenda trying to accomplish and so I want to give you a few examples. I wanted you to just comment on those from a from a perspective that you can bring to the table uh, as a as a Christian woman who can think about how you read the Bible and how we read the Bible is extremely important. But we're going to talk about two areas. First is leadership, and then the second would be how we would actually approach the Bible. So Dwight McKissick serves as a pastor there in Arlington, Texas, and he published an article in Christianity Today that was titled, The Case for Electing Beth Moore as President of the SBC. Now, in this article, he starts off and he talks about Trayvon Martin, and the tragedy with Trayvon Martin's death, and then he discussed the election of Fred Luter as president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he, he talks about in the, in the introduction of this article about how he was so happy and so pleased to have Fred Luter at that season to be able to speak as the president of the SBC about those issues, Okay. He then moves on in the next paragraph, and he talks about how it would be wonderful to have, or how it would be really important, you might say, to have a Hispanic person to address immigration issues while serving as the president of the SBC. And then he just really talked about, asked the question of what that would look like. And then he goes on to the main subject of his article, and then I want to read to you this paragraph and, and frame the conversation of leadership around this statement. He says, Imagine for a moment with me, what if the person serving as SBC president at this hour was a competent, accomplished, biblically sound, orthodox female who could address the multitude of questions and issues the SBC is facing regarding women? The criticism and skepticism would be less dramatic if the SBC historically had demonstrated confidence and belief in the gifts and value of SBC women serving at all levels of leadership in SBC institutional life within boundaries of the Bible, end quote. Now that's an awful lot, but really what I'm driving at is this idea of standpoint epistemology. Once again, he he talks about the issues of Trayvon Martin. He talks about the issues of Hispanic leadership and immigration and the controversies that we're facing as a nation and really as Uh, evangelicals in specific denominations. And then he moves to the issue of women's leadership. And he talked about at this hour, if we could have someone like Beth Moore who could lead the SBC. Now, once again, from standpoint epistemology, it's this idea that a woman is gonna have greater value to offer from a leadership perspective because she has lived life through a specific experience and she can bring all of that experience to the table Uh, as far as her leadership is concerned. So when I'm thinking of leadership, I'm thinking of finding the very best, most competent individual who could lead and who could lead well. Not just thinking in terms of uh, from a a gender perspective or from, say, um, a, a marginalized perspective, but that's really what he's Uh, using as his playbook as he writes this article. So as we're thinking about standpoint epistemology, what would you say to people within evangelical circles who are trying to figure out and navigate who they should choose for various leadership capacities. Obviously, we need to look to Scripture as our definitive source of, you know, how we make these decisions. But what would you say in terms of the freedoms that we have in selecting women to serve in these capacities? Should it be her lived experience or should it be her actual resume?
1: Well, first I want to clarify that a lot of the experiences, it sounds like the author of this article is writing about, are assumed experiences based on the person's race or nationality or gender. They're not actually known experiences. I mean, that's what we talked about when we were talking about Stacey Abrams being, um, you know, having the perspective of a marginalized person. Well, that is assumed. We don't actually know her personal experience and if she's bringing a history of marginalization to the table. And the same thing goes with picking any kind of leader, whether it's for the SPC or something else within the church, simply based on someone's racial identity or their gender or whatever it is. There is a lot of uh, assumption that really points back to someone's underlying Uh, philosophy and probably theology that would lead them to make the statement that because Beth Moore is a woman, she is the right person for the time to address these issues that are concerning the abuse and the disregard of women. You are assuming her lived experience as, as a woman qualifies her for that, when you don't actually know her personal experience. So this is, again, this collectivist Marxist worldview that paints people or puts people in a particular categories based on these immutable characteristics and really, in some ways, superficial uh, identity groups and assigns oppression and assigns experiences to them based on their group identity rather than who they are as an individual. And not only is that illogical, but it also doesn't seem like it would be a very good recipe for competent leadership if that is the qualification that you're looking for. And if those are the assumptions that you use as you are trying to decide who is going to. Lead a group. Um, I also see a lot of abstract thinking when it comes to uh, when it comes to this kind of philosophy or this kind of thinking. When it comes to the idea that we have to have a certain amount of representation of every different group in order to have a good uh, either SBC or a good society or whatever it is, they think of leadership as something in the abstract. as something that we just. See and we look to, and we're content with someone who looks like us, and that is what's important. But leadership is very practical. Leadership has very real implications, very real consequences for people's lives. In the case of the SBC, has very real consequences for um, for the denomination and for the individual churches, and so what really can you tell me the tangible good impacts that it will have for someone who is a certain identity, a certain nationality, whatever it is, the tangible, good, quantifiable impact that person will have on the denomination? You probably can't because it's all an abstract collectivist idea. And I think when it comes to choosing leaders that will have an effect, whose policies, whose ideas, whose decisions, whose rhetoric will have an idea on people's lives, we need to be looking at qualifications much more substantive than someone's gender or nationality. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. In recent days, the Southern Baptist Convention made history by the adoption of what's been known now as Resolution 9, which was basically this idea of using critical race theory and intersectionality as um, as analytical tools to assess the culture and to be able to function uh, within various different ministry aspects. And so, great controversy that erupted from the adoption of Resolution 9, but at the heart of that specific resolution was a specific individual named Curtis Woods, who in his dissertation he is arguing for the use of a specific interpretive methodology that brings to the surface the African experience. Now, the reason that I cite woods 's dissertation is because when it comes to the reading of the Bible we don 't need to read the Bible through this lens of well, what does the Bible mean to you uh, there, there was an old you know way of reading the Bible years ago that was popular within certain denominational groups within evangelicalism that suggested that, you know, you get in a circle and you just read a passage of scripture and go around in a circle and say, well, what does this passage mean to you? Well, it really doesn't matter what it means to me. It doesn't really matter what it means to you. What what really matters is what does the text actually mean? And there's only one meaning to every biblical text. So it's my job, it's your job when we read the Bible to actually drill down to the actual meaning of that text. And so when we're thinking of, you know, bringing to the table specific individuals, you know, a person has to have a certain ethnicity or they have to have a certain gender category or they have to, you know, a certain, you know, school might need to have a certain percentage of women and a certain percentage of black people and whatever else really what i think when we think about the bible or when it comes to teaching the bible or even within the local church setting as far as preaching and teaching it should be who actually knows how to interpret the bible the best who can actually drill down to the actual meaning of that text and then apply it to the modern audience so you bridge the gap from the ancient context to the modern audience and it doesn't really matter what the african experience is or the anglo experience is or anything else it really matters is Is what the text actually says. There's only one meaning to that text. And so when you hear about people asking people to read the Bible through an African experience or a woman's experience or uh, whatever experience it might be, does that alarm you as you think about the reading of Holy Scripture?
1: Yes, especially when I think about the roots of something like critical race theory or Black liberation theology. James H. Cone, who himself was not a Christian, who said that he was really okay with any religion that agreed with his idea of liberation and empowerment. His philosophies and his writings are Uh, serve as much of the foundation for this idea that critical race theory is an effective tool through which we should be seeing scripture. And so it's a little bit troubling to me that a non-Christian person is serving as kind of the father of the idea that in the SBC people are saying we should be using this as a tool to interpret scripture now like i said and and you said too of course all of us have different experiences we have different ways our brains work we have different ways we see things we have different ways that we came to christ um and so we are going to bring that inevitably to how we read the bible but when we read the bible like you said we're not looking for what it means to me and all of my experiences or fitting it in the context of my preconceived notions of how God should be or how culture works or how I want to feel. Um, we are going into scripture to see what it means. And all of my experiences, all of my preconceived notions, all of my will and desire and comfort level have been to to what scripture actually means. And if we can acknowledge that, that would be a good place. If we can acknowledge, hey, we've got different experiences. Maybe truly you were oppressed. Maybe you were on the wrong end of injustice. Maybe you, we all do have different experiences, different perspectives and things like that. But hey, when we come together, every single one of us, all of our different uh, uh, perspectives, experience, maybe with true marginalization, whatever it is, all of it bends a knee to scripture and to Jesus Christ, then that would be in a good place. We're not pretending that humanity is a monolith we're not pretending that everyone is the same and has the same experience we're certainly not pretending that men and women are the same and that we think in the same way we are different the beauty of it is that we unite behind uh, sola scriptura we unite behind the fact that jesus christ is our king and if we could get to that place um then we could actually have some good theological debates but the conversation about critical race theory Versus how to actually look at the Bible from the lens of scripture is our authority no matter what. Um, That's like an extra biblical conversation. That's not even interesting. You're talking about an extra biblical way to look at scripture versus looking at scripture as our sole authority on truth. And that to me is like a non-Christian conversation. The conversation that I wish that we could have is about the nitty gritty of scripture. Okay. What does this actually mean? But if you've got someone using critical race theory as a tool, which is a a non-Christian tool and someone who is using a Christian tool to study the Bible, you're just going to keep on, you're going to keep on missing each other.
0: So when we read the Bible, we need to read the Bible through this, this, proper lens this this literal grammatical historical lens in a framework that allows us to get back to the original meaning of the text so you know what you're saying is absolutely on point so we read the bible and we say okay this is what the bible means this is truth and then we allow that truth to be applied to our experience rather than reading the bible backwards where we read our experience into the bible so it's exegesis rather than eisegesis and so that's critically important and then when we think about this infusion of standpoint epistemology within evangelicalism it affects how we read the bible and it really it, it, it has a massive um uh effect upon the actual meaning of the text itself and so we need to guard the meaning of the bible and then if we back up to the previous sphere that we were discussing, which is politics, we want to try to figure out how to, you know, look at real life and yes, different experiences matter. But at the end of the day, we should not value someone based upon just their skin color or just because they're a woman or just because they're a man, we should actually say, how can this person bring to the table, uh, value and ideas and opinions and, and policies that will actually help us and benefit us as a nation. So standpoint epistemology comes from a Marxist background through standpoint theory, through this standpoint feminist worldview that actually is extremely dangerous, and we should avoid this, whether it be politics or whether it be within the circles of the church, And so as you uh, had the last word, Allie, any words that you would say, just encouraging words, maybe to younger women, uh, as far as their views of politics and also maybe anything to do with uh, their growth and their pursuit of holiness as a young woman, or perhaps even a mother.
1: Yes. i see what we're talking about today so much in young women's circles and I even think about when I was a young Christian and I was a part of Bible studies how I thought that the way that you studied the Bible was saying well what does this mean to me how can I see this in myself or see this in my own life and that was how I and all the young immature and I don't you know I'm not trying to be pejorative but all the young immature Christians I knew that's how we approached Scripture and prayer it was about us; we were at the center, and everything else kind of centered around us and then thankfully, as you grow, Christ sanctifies you, you realize the error in your ways and how unfulfilling that kind of what I call meology is rather than theology. And this is so prevalent among women because, and again, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I am a woman. So I feel like it's okay for me to say that we are more emotional. We are more sensitive. We are looking for um, things that will make us feel good and feel better. We don't want to sit in that discomfort and that tension. And so often we are coddled. We are coddled by Christian teachers were coddled by the women who call themselves theologians. We are coddled by the Christian authors and the influencers that constantly tell us that Jesus doesn't want us to change at all. And I just think that women, all people, but the people I'm talking to, women are worth more than that. And they are able to handle the truth. Like women need to hear, just like any man needs to hear, that you are dead in your sin apart from Christ and that with Christ you are reconciled to a holy God. That's amazing news. Anyone who tries to tell you that the gospel is anything less than that, that the gospel is Jesus coming alongside you and telling you that you're pretty and that you're fine the way you are, just be comfortable and everything's good, doesn't love you. And that's what I wish women would know. That it's not harsh for someone to tell you that you're a sinner and need of a savior. That is the greatest love that anyone could ever show you. And it's a darn shame. It's a darn shame that a lot of women in the church and a lot of so-called female theologians today aren't willing to talk about sin and salvation and sanctification with women because they think we can't handle it. We can.
0: Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the G3 Podcast, Alley. Always a privilege to talk with you. It's a wonderful thing to, to see how God is using you and you continue to be a trusted voice. And just to watch how you navigate both the political sphere and also continue to be a trusted voice pointing young women to find their hope in Christ. And again, just demonstrating what it means to be a Christian, that it's far more than just what you do on Sunday, but it affects the whole of life. So thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. God bless you. Have a great day. We want you to know that you can find this episode of the G3 podcast at our website at g3conference.com. You're also going to be able to find additional information about G3 events such as the G3 at C that's coming up this January. You're also going to be able to find out additional information about other events such as the 2021 G3 conference coming up next October. That's a year from this October and it's going to be in Atlanta and it's on the subject of Christ. We hope that you will make your plans to join us for that conference. You can find out information about lodging. You can also find out information about the conference itself, speakers, and the dates there on our website. We also have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that and as well as, as an app, a free app you can download on your smartphone, and you can find the archives of G3 conferences and other information there that will benefit you in your walk with Christ. And as always, we hope that you will continue to be a faithful, contributing, healthy member of your local church for the glory of God. May God bless you.